You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features President Obama's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, Lisa Monaco. Monaco talks about what keeps her up at night, from ISIL to Al-Qaeda to hashtag jihadists, and how she is working to make us safer. Mike Isakoff leads the conversation from the Aspen Security Forum just a few weeks ago. Isakoff is an award-winning journalist and chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. He is the author of two New York Times best-selling books, Hubris, The Inside Story of Spin, Scandal, and the Selling of the Iraq War, and Uncovering Clinton, A Reporter's Story. Here are Lisa Monaco and Mike Isakoff. Okay, thank you, and it's uh, great to be back here at uh, Aspen. Um, we've got um, a uh, real treat here this afternoon because um, I know we've had a lot of experts and uh, current and former U.S. Uh, counterterrorism officials here, but few have been um, more directly involved in uh, both implementing and setting U.S. counterterrorism policy than Lisa Monaco. Lisa was the chief of staff to FBI Director uh, uh, Bob Mueller uh, towards the end of the Bush administration. She then joined the uh, Obama administration at the Justice Department. She was assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division. And uh, since 2013, President Obama's Homeland uh, Security and Counterterrorism Advisor. So um, on that note, given that the uh, title of this talk or the subtitle is uh, you are going to tell us about uh, what keeps you up at night, tell us about uh, your last few sleepless nights. Uh, how, how, thank you for that uh, caveat there. Uh, how long do you have? I think we've got a limited uh, time. But minutes. So, um, you know, people talk about sleepless nights, and the image is invoked of people tossing and turning. So the assumption is that you've actually made it to bed and gotten into <laughs> the beginning stages of REM sleep. Um, yeah. So uh, I can challenge that assumption. So really, it's, the, the question is, uh, do you actually make it uh, into, uh, into the sleep state? And you usually don't because uh, the phone calls keep coming. Uh, you know, the sleeplessness started very early on in my tenure. As you mentioned, I started in 2013. About three weeks uh, into the job, uh, we had the Boston Marathon bombings uh, that affected, obviously, uh, Boston and my hometown. And uh, well into that week, I remember vividly, it was Thursday night, uh, the manhunt was still ongoing for the Boston Marathon bombers. And I got home to my house about 1 a.m. And uh, shortly thereafter, I got a call from the Situation Room telling me about a carjacking that had occurred in Cambridge uh, and the death of a uh, MIT policeman, which we all, of course, know the story now. And it had all the hallmarks of something that I was going to need to be concerned about based on everything we'd been seeing the previous week. So flurry of phone calls, including with the then FBI director, Bob Mueller, uh, his deputy, a uh, number of other folks. And I was back on my way into the office at 3 AM. And uh, three weeks into my job, waking up the president from a sound sleep, so he also had a sleepless night, at 4 AM to tell him that one of the bombers was dead and the other one was on the run. Mm. Um, 
Let's, um, uh, there's been a lot of talk at the conference here about um, the successes that U.S. Pol uh, policy has had in degrading um, uh, al-Qaeda. Core al-Qaeda has been described as nearly finished at this point. Um, but clearly, ISIL, the threat from ISIL is very much with us nearly 10 months after the president announced the military campaign. They're still holding large swaths of territory in um, Iraq and Syria, including Mosul, the Iraq's large, second largest city. Um, there's this unbelievable propaganda uh, offensive on social media that's drawing people to them. Why is, why has progress against ISIL been so slow? So I think there's several dimensions of that to, to take on, right? So ISIL and its um, uh, efforts in Iraq and Syria. And then, of course, the thing that we've been focusing on here, I think quite rightly, and we should talk more about it today, which is uh, the threat, the unique threat that they pose to the homeland now. Uh, with regard to your specific question, look, I think there's a number of, of factors here. Uh, and the president has spoken uh, to this most recently, a couple weeks ago, at the Pentagon. Uh, they are uh, posed a, a unique threat in Iraq and Syria, which is why we began the military campaign 10 months ago, because they could demonstrate an ability to take and hold territory. That was a new feature and something we knew we had to, we had to go after. Now, they are now embedded in communities. Uh, and that poses a difficulty uh, in uh, going after them uh, from the air. But that's not going to be the uh, sum total, and it continues to not be the sum total of what we're doing. And it won't be the way we ultimately route them, the way we're going to route them. And we have had significant success. They've lost a quarter of the territory that they previously had. We've taken a number of some between 5,000 and 6,000 strikes between Iraq and Syria with an unprecedented coalition, including uh, a galvanized, a really incredibly galvanized, unified uh, Gulf uh, governments. Uh, but it's going to take time. Uh, and so they're embedding in the Sunni community. They're embedding uh, in the civilian community. makes them hard to root out. And ultimately, how we're going to go at this is going to be through local forces. And frankly, the military will be the first one to tell you, this is not going to get done by military force alone, which is why we've got a strategy that talks about going after their finances, that goes after their foreign fighters, that goes after the, the incredible humanitarian issues. Let me ask you a little bit about goals here, because when the president gave his speech September 10th last year, he said our objective was to degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL. Mm -hmm. And uh, British Prime Minister David Cameron just in the last week gave a t TV interview in which he used the same similar language, we have to destroy this caliphate, whether it is in Iraq or Syria, but in his press conference, most recent one, about a week and a half ago, the president used some different language. He said, I think my goal when I turn over the keys to the next president is that we are on track to defeat ISIL, that they are much more contained and we're moving in the right, right direction and we have pushed back ISIL. So just to clarify, what is the administration's goal here? Is it to destroy ISIL or is it to contain and push it back? So the goal, as the president has said, 
is to degrade, defeat, and ultimately, ultimately to destroy ISIL. But we've got to be very clear-eyed about this. It is going to take time, which is also what Prime Minister Cameron and anybody who's a serious uh, person looking at this will tell you. This is going to be, it's been described as a generational struggle. The campaign itself uh, is one that is not a year, it's not two years. Likely, um, those are, that is not the measure uh, to bring to this. It is going to be an issue that is going to take a lot of time. There's going to be progress. There's going to be setbacks. But our goal is to degrade, defeat, and ultimately to destroy. And that means going after what is their claim. Their claim is to build a caliphate, right? Their claim is to establish an Islamic state. And that is rooted on their ability to take and hold ground and to uh, uh, pursue this ideology and to extend it, whether it's through propaganda on social media, uh, or through, through other means, we've got to delegitimize that effort. We've got to attack and basically make clear to people that you shouldn't buy what they're selling. They can't actually continue to hold territory and maintain legitimacy. They can't actually ultimately govern, and we see examples of it uh, all over the place. They're not actually providing services. They're actually killing uh, some of the people that they're trying to recruit. So we've got to attack not only their ability to hold ground, but ultimately the message that they're trying to perpetuate. Um, the president in that speech last uh, September uh, also said, um, the, the campaign will be waged through a steady, relentless effort to take out ISIL wherever they exist. Now, since then, ISIL has spread to Libya, to the Sinai, to Afghanistan. Are we at war? with ISIL in Libya and those other countries? So look, ISIL is uh, undertaking an effort to establish an Islamic state, first in uh, the heartland of uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, but as you said, they are ex trying to expand to at least eight provinces uh, at this point, Libya being the most uh, advanced and concerning in terms of sending actual uh, operative focused on external attacks, but everywhere from North Africa to the Caucasus. So yes, we are absolutely concerned about their ability to uh, find safe haven, to take root, uh, and to um, attract fighters and to then extend their reach uh, against uh, our partners, our allies, and ultimately to the homeland. And we are going to uh, make sure that we are taking steps. If there's a threat posed to the United States from Libya, from one of these places, there should be no uh, satisfaction amongst ISIL that they're going to have a safe haven and that that threat won't be addressed. So just to be clear, because I know you asked for a, a new authorization to use mm -hmm. military force uh, against ISIL. You didn't get it, so you're still relying on the old yep. 2001. But um, the president, uh, in uh, the White House's view, has the authority now to order military strikes in Libya, in the Sinai, in uh, any place in Africa or elsewhere where ISIL rears its head? Look, the authority, the president has the authority to conduct the military operations that we're doing, rooted in the 2001 AOMF. What we have said, however, is we ought to provide the people who are conducting and putting their lives on the line, and we ought to show our partners and the American people that we are unified as a government amongst branches in supporting the efforts uh, of the people uh, waging this fight. That's why we asked for another AUMF, which does not have a geographic boundary, uh, mm -hmm. as you noted. So in fact, we can address threats that come if ISIL 
establishes more than a foothold and actually an operational capability. You have spent a lot of time on the um, social media uh, component of this, how ISIL is using um, social media. You had a counter, uh, countervailing, countering a violent extremism summit a couple months ago at the White House where it was uh, noted that Twitter, which has been the prime vehicle for ISIL to spread its propaganda, um, no Twitter executives appeared uh, or spoke at that summit. Are you getting enough um, help and cooperation from Twitter and the other social media companies in policing their networks? So there's a few things I'd say about this. One is the uh, cooperation um, has been getting better, but it needs to get even better. So, for instance, there's the tactical approach, right? There will be a horrific beheading video uh, on social media on a particular platform, maybe Twitter. And I think what the law enforcement experts would tell you is if you, if you seek out uh, and go to Twitter or some of the other companies to say, help us address this specific issue, that there is a good deal of cooperation. What we are all struggling with and what we need more uh, from the companies, more help with, uh, is a systematic way to go about addressing what I feel has become an exponential threat posed to the homeland by ISIL and its use of social media. So what do I mean by that? Yes. So we've had a lot of discussion here about ISIL's uh, prolific use of social media. When you think about the sheer math involved, right? You've heard the numbers, 2,000 fanboys that ISIL may have, uh, hashtag jihadis that are actually really pushing out uh, some of the most egregious uh, content. If they have, and by some number they do, 50,000 followers each, just simply do the math there. That is an exponential threat of potential uh, vulnerability and radicalization to vulnerable and troubled minds uh, that can pose a real threat to us in the homeland. So we need social media companies to help us address that. To what do you, what do you, so what do you want them to do? Do you want Twitter to take these people down more aggressively? We want them to take these, these accounts down more aggressively. But let's be clear. And when, you, and when you say that to them, what do they tell you? So I think there's an ethos uh, that is uh, out there that there needs to be. This is, in part, a free space. And, and I think there's a valid uh, discussion to have. I think there is a brutal irony in the fact that a group that gets its entire inspiration uh, in the rejection of modernity which is ISIL's ethos, is using a platform that has been uh, allowed us uh, in a wonderful way to express, uh, to have free expression and express ideas. But we've got to have a discussion about how we use that platform also to counter that narrative. Because we are not going to delete our way out of this. Uh, we're not going to kill our way out of this. We need to have, and in my discussions with uh, tech industry executives, uh, we need to do what's called adding more inventory, right? So I convened a group of uh, tech executives, social entrepreneurs, NGOs, philanthropists, who are all really concerned about this. And I got together with them in Silicon Valley uh, because by no means does the U.S. government have a corner on the wisdom here, uh, a corner on the market of wisdom on this. And we are not the best messengers. Any message to counter ISIL's narrative that comes with a U.S. government seal is by definition not going to be something that is appealing 
uh, to the target audience here. So what can we do uniquely as a government? We can use our convening power. We can bring together tech executives, NGOs, alternative voices, and put them together to try and solve this problem. So when I raised this with uh, some of the folks I met with out at Stanford at a wonderful place called the Design School, the D School, which is, does some tremendous innovative thinking, they said, we would love to suppress those search results like they do for child pornography and use algorithms to uh, when somebody is seeking out a beheading video, they don't get that. That comes back at you know, view page uh, 30 instead of number one. But we don't have any inventory to replace it with. And that is a really bracing concept. So we need to have put those smart technology minds and distribution platforms together with alternative voices, legitimate voices who can counter this narrative and uh, create that laboratory and spread that message out. We've had a lot of talk about policy here, um, but you've had some personal gut-wrenching experiences as the government's point person in dealing with the families of the hostages um, that were being held by ISIL and, and, and others. Um, I wonder if you could just sort of take us into the room, into the White House or wherever you were nearly a year ago when the um, James Foley beheading video was released by ISIL. And tell us a little bit about what it was like to watch that, what your thoughts and reaction was, and how you told the president about it. Um. This issue is one uh, that I think has been uh, one of the hardest uh, emotionally, policy-wise, uh, and humanity uh, issues to deal with uh, sitting in my seat. And for all of us in the intelligence and law enforcement uh, uh, communities and in the counterterrorism community. Uh, on that day, um, and I remember it vividly, I was sitting in my uh, office in the ground floor of the West Wing, the same one that Fran uh, just referenced. Um, and uh, I was actually on the phone uh, with Ben Rhodes, who was traveling with the president at the time. Uh, he was on his way up to Martha's Vineyard. And uh, one of my uh, staff came in uh, to say that this video had appeared. Uh, we didn't have advance warning of it. Uh, and I watched uh, the pretty lengthy video and recounted it and described it quite horrifically uh, to uh, Ben Rhodes, who was traveling with the president at the time. And uh, how did I feel? I was sick to my stomach. It was a horrific thing to see. Uh, and having uh, spent time with Diane Foley uh, and John Foley and John Foley Jr., um, it was uh, gut-wrenching is, is the right word for it. And it was horrible. And the videos that came after it were equally so. And uh, it uh, galvanized us even more uh, to try and uh, take a hard look at what we need to do to do better by these families. And that's what we did. Did you call the Foley's? Uh, I did not call the Foley's. Um, after that, uh, the president did. Um, I had spoken to them before, several times before uh, that video came out. Uh, I had spoken to them a few days after the president did, but I was not the one who informed them of, of the video. How much of an impact did 
that video and then the subsequent one uh, a week or two later, um, or a few weeks later, uh, of the beheading of Steve Sotloff, and the knowledge that you had another hostage, Kayla Mueller, still being held by ISIL. How much of an impact did that have on the decision to launch the military campaign against ISIL in September? So uh, it, is, um, it is something that was not out of our minds, certainly. Um, but uh, we also, you know, you had demands in these videos uh, for America to, uh, and for the president in particular in the United States, to undertake or to not undertake uh, certain operations, and we could not have our foreign policy decisions uh, impacted by uh, a murderous band of brutal, brutal thugs. And that is a hard thing uh, to understand. It's a hard thing to say. But uh, I will tell you, I also spoke to a number of parents uh, who at the time uh, had their children uh, still uh, in harm's way. And uh, a few of them uh, were quite clear with me that they didn't want it to change uh, our calculus. And, and just a point on this, Mike, I have to say, I've spent a lot of time uh, with the parents of um, the Americans who were killed uh, and those who still have their loved ones in harm's way. And to a person, I have been awestruck and inspired by the grace, the courage, the smarts, uh, and uh, the dedication and determination they have to turn some light from the just incredible darkness that uh, ISIL has, uh, has been perpetrating. And their help in our hostage policy review uh, was invaluable. Uh, and the fact that they had the courage to engage with the government uh, who they feel and who they rightly uh, uh, feel at times let them down uh, is really a testament to what's great about this country. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, they, they were um, not entirely uh, uh, satisfied with, yeah. the, with what they were hearing from the government. In particular, a member of your staff uh, made comments that both the Foley's and the Sotloffs interpreted as threatening them with criminal prosecution if they uh, tried to raise money to pay ransom. Um, uh, you've since announced a new hostage policy, um, which you've described as um, the US government will not pay ransoms or make concessions, but it's not going to abandon families when they make private, independent decisions about engaging or negotiating with hostage takers. What does that mean exactly if another family comes to you because a loved one is being held by uh, a terrorist group and says, we've got these ransom demands and we uh, would like to raise the money to pay them? Um, what would you tell them? So um, first, uh, on, the, on the point you raised, uh, no one, no family should ever be threatened with prosecution and that was made uh, very, very clear, and that was made clear uh, in the announcement of the results of our policy review. We did not change the policy of the United States government, which remains and will continue to remain, uh, that there will not be concessions made of any kind to um, uh, those holding hostages, including ransom. That said, um, what it means uh, when we said we will not um, uh, abandon a family is just that, uh, and I'm not gonna stand here or sit here and um, describe every 
uh, every uh, tactic or operational uh, undertaking that might help a family and help us glean intelligence about the location uh, of an American hostage or help a family work with and communicate to hostage takers. I don't think any member of this audience would want me to disclose that. But what it means is we will work with families. We will use uh, uh, a number of means at our disposal to try and uh, develop intelligence, to develop options, including but not limited to uh, sending uh, our uh, military operators into incredibly dangerous situations to try and get our people home. Uh, another uh, issue that you have spent a lot of time on is Guantanamo. Um, and I believe you're about to present a plan to Senator McCain uh, to fulfill the president's commitment on his first full day in office to shut Guantanamo down. Um, you've obviously run into a lot of roadblocks, including opposition from Congress. We heard just this morning from Chairman McCall of the Homeland Security Committee. He does not believe that um, uh, detainees should be transferred out of there. Uh, the, what's, what's left is the worst of the worst. What can you tell us about your new plan, um, where you would put the detainees, and why it will succeed any better than your previous plans that have failed? So. Uh my hope is that uh, those uh, who in Congress, including Senator McCain, um, who's been thoughtful on this uh, and who uh, is uh, a supporter of closing Guantanamo, uh, as is the president, in a responsible way. Um, my hope is that we can work with him and his colleagues to get this done. This is not something that the president wants to turn over to his successor. And uh, the plan, uh, and it's, I think maybe it's worth demystifying, uh, is consistent with what uh, the president has said all along. We're going to transfer safely and securely uh, everyone who has unanimous, unanimously by the president's uh, national security team been deemed eligible for transfer, that's 52 people at current count, uh, subject to security arrangements with the receiving country. So that doesn't mean just uh, unlocking the door and having uh, somebody go willy-nilly to, to another country. It means a painstaking um, uh, establishment of security protocols that would govern the transfer of that individual. Uh, so we're gonna transfer everyone who has been deemed eligible for transfer consistent with security. And we're going to prosecute those who can be prosecuted. But here I will say, this is one of the roadblocks you described. Right now we've got 10 people subject to the military commissions. There are some uh, other number who could be prosecuted in federal court and sent to a supermax prison. Right now, we are barred by statute from bringing anybody here from Guantanamo, even to put them in a supermax prison. So, but you've also got, what, about 58 who have been deemed uh, too dangerous to release and not enough yep. evidence to bring to trial. Where would you put those detainees in the United States? So this is something, again, uh, ever since the first term, we've been quite clear. Those who are too dangerous to release, and we've been very clear that there is a number uh, that, uh, that, that, is, uh, that the national security team uh, has made clear are right now too dangerous to release. That was a unanimous decision of the president's national security team. So right now, let's give some numbers, 116 detainees in uh, Guantanamo today. 
On, two, on uh, January 21st, 2009, that number was 242. Uh, in the last administration, before uh, President Obama took office, some 530 detainees were transferred, have already been transferred uh, out of Guantanamo Bay. So we're at 116 right now. 52 of them are um, uh, deemed eligible for transfer subject to uh, security restrictions. And the balance are in what we call the law of war category. They have been deemed right now um, too dangerous to release. Now what the president also did was say that group who either can't be prosecuted uh, or are too dangerous to release, we are going to continue to evaluate their status. And he put in place something called a periodic review board. To date, we have held 13 of those periodic review boards. And 10 in, the, in 10 instances, those individuals have been transferred uh, to the transfer bucket. So we are going to whittle down this group to what uh, I refer to as the irreducible minimum who would have to be brought here to a secure location held under the laws of war, continuing uh, under military detention. Uh, and that's the only way we're going to be able to close Guantanamo and then subject those individuals either to prosecution and military commission or Article III courts and a supermax cell. Uh, and ultimately, that's the way we're going to do it. But we got to work with Congress. And right now, we aren't even able to uh, put that facility together because of the legal restrictions. Right, and I think the president has said uh, that he will veto a National Defense Authorization Act if it does not lift the restrictions yep. on um, transferring detainees to Guantanamo. Um, if he uh, does that, then he will then act unilaterally and bring these detainees out of Guantanamo into the United States? No, what I'm if saying his veto is, is sustained. What I'm saying is we're trying to work with the Congress, and, and, and Senator McCain has been very forthright about this. Uh, uh, Secretary Carter and I have had discussions with the senator. He said, rightly, give us a plan for how you want to do this. And most importantly, I think his concern and others is if those individuals are brought to the United States, how can we be sure that they can continue to be held securely and will not be let out on some legal technicality. But I just want to be clear, if his veto is sustained, he will act unilaterally to bring those detainees into the United States. We're going to work with Congress to try and get this done. And we've got, we've got I'm going to take Senator McCain at his word that he wants to work with us. Because, uh, you know, let's look at this, Mike. I mean, why hand over this albatross to the president's successor? And we have made clear that we've got the legal uh, strictures in place that would, uh, the, these detainees, if they're brought to the United States and held in uh, a military facility, they would not be afforded relief under the immigration laws. They would continue to be held. They'd either be prosecuted uh, in a military commission or put in a supermax, which by the way, the costs involved here, and this I think is why uh, Senator McCain and some others believe we really should close Guantanamo. Today, right now, $3 million per detainee per year to house them in Guantanamo. The, we can be spending that money on a host of national security threats that we've been talking about all week. The, 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 the basic argument for shutting Guantanamo down from the beginning was that it was a recruitment tool for Al Qaeda. 
Al-Qaeda Al is now almost finished, and ISIL's propaganda recruiting young people has very little, if anything, about Guantanamo. Isn't the whole premise of the argument uh, for shutting down Guantanamo, Guantanamo somewhat diminished now? No, because no. it is not the recruitment tool that it was. I don't think so, um, because uh, there's a number of arguments for closing Guantanamo. One is uh, that it's used as a propaganda and recruiting tool, and that continues. Uh, the other is that uh, it has caused uh, a lot of, uh, a number of our partners uh, to constrain their cooperation with us because of their concerns about Guantanamo. Uh, and the third is the sheer cost. So the number I just gave you, that's today's cost. This is an aging population and an aging uh, facility. That cost is gonna go up in uh, an age of sequestration and the incredible burden being put on our military, uh, cycling, uh, guard forces in and out to, to do uh, what they do, frankly, quite um, professionally and with dignity, but it is not something uh, that their talents, uh, that they joined uh, the military uh, to do. We need to be putting that money and those talents of those servicemen uh, against other threats. Um, the president gave a major speech back in May 2013 about drones. And he said he wanted to be facilitate transparency and debate on drones. And in talking about it, he said something quite noteworthy about drone strikes. He said, it is a hard fact that US strikes have resulted in civilian casualties. For me and those in my chain of command, those deaths will haunt us as long as we live. How many civilians have been killed by US drone strikes? So it uh, won't surprise you that uh, I'm not going to uh, be able to give you uh, a specific number. Uh, because quite frankly, uh, and this goes to something uh, that the president has also said, uh, that we're trying to shed more light on our counterterrorism operations. We are trying to do so in a way that um, allows us to continue to use the tools we need to keep Americans safe. There is a tension here. Um, now, the president has been quite clear that we want to put more light on our counterterrorism operations, not transparency for transparency's sake, but because if we can talk more about what we're doing, how we're doing it, the standards that we're applying when we do it, we're going to have more legitimacy and more trust in our partners and most importantly, from the American people. So central to that debate yep. is this issue of civilian casualties. We've yes. had enormous discrepancies in reports about how many civilians have been killed, but credible reports from Human Rights Watch and others about um, uh, fairly significant civilian deaths, particularly in Yemen. Mm -hmm. How can the public have a debate about the central thrust of your policy. If you can't answer the simple question, how many civilians do you think have been killed so, by, your, by US drone strikes? It's an absolutely valid question, right? And there is, and this is why we have been disclosing and reading out and describing uh, the military strikes taking place in Iraq uh, and Syria, which is why over the course of the last 18 months, you have seen the military describe every kinetic operation they've taken in Somalia, right? Now there are going to be, and including civilian casualties, you've seen the military describe where we assess there may have been civilian casualties and strikes in Syria or Iraq. Uh, and that is a commitment we make. There will be times that we cannot discuss specifics of counterterrorism operations. 
And that will be done uh, based on the fact either because we have a partner that we can't expose, a source or a method that we're using that we can't expose, a law that prohibits us. That is something that we would like to keep to a minimum. But the reality is the president's commitment to uh, increasing the transparency around our counterterrorism operations has been shown uh, in the last several years in the areas that I mentioned, uh, including in uh, the most recent strike we took in Libya. After the president acknowledged and apologized for the drone strike in Pakistan that killed Warren Weinstein and an Italian hostage, Giovanni Loporto. Um, Josh Ernest said at the White House that the uh, families will be compensated. Mm -hmm. Is it US policy to compensate the families of innocent victims of drone strikes? And if so, does it only apply to Western, Westerners or does it apply to the um, families of those killed in Yemen, Somalia, and Pakistan? So uh, this is something that um, uh, we are actually working quite hard on in terms of trying to come up with a framework that can be consistently applied. So to answer your question specifically, it does not it's not confined to Westerners. It's not confined to Americans. After every um, uh, strike where there is a credible allegation of a non-combatant death, there is uh, an after-action review that is conducted. There is a, uh, a uh, review on lessons learned and uh, working with partners, an effort to uh, make uh, compensation payments, uh, including to um, uh, civilians uh, resident in the country where the uh, strike took place. So how many times have you made compensation payments? So it's interesting, your title as chief investigative correspondent is, is uh, abundantly on display. But, um, I don't know that I'm getting that much. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it's an A for effort. So uh, there, you won't give an answer to that question? <laughs> and uh, again, your, your, uh, your uh, investigative skills are, are clear. OK, I've hit the wall here. So I'm going to uh, open it up uh, to the audience. Uh, Sean Waterman there. Thank you, uh, Ms. Monaco, for doing this. So last Thanksgiving, North Korean hackers attacked uh, Sony, and um, the administration said that uh, because it was a nation-state attack, because it was a destructive attack, because it was designed to have a coercive effect on a free speech issue that's at the heart of US values, that they were going to name North Korea, and they sanctioned people, and they were going to take other actions. Also last year, the Iranians destroyed the computer network of the Sands Casino, uh, also a nation-state destructive attack aimed at uh, punishing or dissuading Mr. Adelson, the, the owner of the Sands, from making further remarks about turning Iran into a car park. Um, why hasn't the administration done anything like they did to North Korea about that, and I will accept the answer because we were in nuclear negotiations with them. <laughs> uh, that is not the answer. Um, look, I think Admiral Rogers uh, got this exactly right uh, when he said, as uh, some of you may have seen uh, in his discussion a few days ago, uh, every case is going to be different, and there's a number of factors that we're going to take into account. Do we have um, uh, an understanding of who did it? What's the attribution? There's going to be a number of things that go into that. 
technical forensics investigation that gets done by experts uh, from uh, agencies represented uh, in this room. There's going to be a question of what, even if we know or think we know, what's our level of confidence in that judgment? Those two things don't always coincide. And then there's a question of what can we say about what we know and with what degree of confidence? What can we show to the world uh, to substantiate our attribution. You talked about North Korea. We did make a clear judgment. Uh, we were able to attribute through some amazingly good work by the intelligence community, by the FBI and others, that that uh, action was conducted uh, by North Korea. We had the ability to declassify that information in a way that it was not, disclosing it was not going to hurt our further efforts. That is just not always the case uh, in every situation. And we're gonna make judgments uh, in each case and to try and determine what we can do. And in that case, we could disclose those, those um, uh, sources and methods. Now, we were questioned about that by, I would argue, some in the private sector who had an interest in undercutting uh, the government's judgment. But uh, again, it's going to be a case-by-case -case, uh, determination, and sometimes those things won't always align. Ken. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Ken Delanian from the AP. Although Michael hit a wall, I want to try to break through it a little bit on the <laughs> drone casualty issue. Um, we, I think we understand why you can't talk about maybe some specific strikes in specific countries, but what, how does that track to not being able to discuss the broad number of civilian casualties writ large? So. You know, the, um, I could give ranges here. Um, and do. I know. Um, it would be progress. Yes. <laughs> Towards transparency. Look, it's, your frustration is, I think, justified. And let me say this. Um, right now, those numbers continue to be classified. The reason is because uh, to um, disclose them, even in the aggregate, would pose legal uh, challenges to certain operations, which is the most I'm going to be able to get into sitting in this seat. Um, but what you should know is that is a discussion that is very, very, very much ongoing. And where um, we can make discrete declassification decisions, uh, where we can do so that it will not jeopardize our ability to use tools going forward and to keep the American people safe, uh, and you saw this on tragic display in the case of uh, the strike that killed uh, Giovanni Laporto and Warren Weinstein, uh, we will make that disclosure. But what you should know is that even without uh, being able to detail each one of these, uh, there is an active review that goes on and real lessons that are learned uh, when tragic mistakes are made. Did I, did I hear you say you will disclose the results of the review the president ordered into the Weinstein strike? So uh, to the extent we can, absolutely, there will be um, as much transparency as can be made, um, uh, which is consistent with what the president did when we announced uh, that it was a U.S. counterterrorism operation uh, that took uh, the lives of Warren Weinstein and Giovanni Laporto. We have room for one more, and I see General Hayden in the back there, raising his hand. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Mike Hayden, Chertoff Group. If we move the five dozen detainees to the United States, as I understand the plan, we, we will try some, but there will still be some residual group we'll keep under the laws of armed conflict. Yep. With Guantanamo behind us, would the administration then be willing to keep some future detainees inside the United States under the laws of armed conflict? 
So it's a great question. And I think, again, there's another discussion we need to have with Congress. Right now, uh, we have said very, very clearly, and we have demonstrated this, where there is a counterterrorism threat posed uh, by a group or an individual, we will use a host of tools to disrupt that threat. We will use kinetic action when there's no other means or where the government, where that threat is coming from, is unwilling or unable to address it. We will conduct a capture operation, which Matt Olson talked about, which, by the way, was one of my sleepless nights, the Abu Qatala uh, capture operation. And we will conduct prosecutions. Right now, our, uh, we do that. And in any of those events, our first um, goal is to get intelligence from that captured uh, individual uh, to determine whether there are additional threats out there. Right now, we do that and have done it in the case of uh, Abu Nas al-Libi and uh, Warsami, where we conduct that uh, intelligence interrogation uh, on a ship. And we've done that uh, in a few instances. Uh, we need to have a conversation uh, about uh, that authority going forward. The wife of uh, Abu Sayyaf, who was captured in the raid in May, um, she's been held in indefinite detention for the last several months. Um, is she going to be put on trial in the United States, or will she continue to be held in indefinite detention? So uh, those uh, discussions are ongoing, consistent with the policy we've articulated very clearly. First and foremost, let's get the intelligence resident, and there's already been a tremendous amount of uh, intelligence through the amazing work of uh, the military operators who conducted that raid. Let's get the intelligence uh, from that raid and uh, from her. Uh, let's determine uh, what it could provide in the form of a prosecution, and uh, we'll look to the prosecutors to make that judgment. Uh, and if not, uh, then is there a way to have her uh, be prosecuted if that's a, an available option uh, in another forum, uh, perhaps uh, in Iraq uh, or, uh, or some other forum? Well, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, so I want to thank Lisa Monaco for sharing what she could. Um, <laughs> I did my best, um, but uh, hopefully we might have moved the ball a little. Anyway, thank you. That was Lisa Monaco, Deputy National Security Advisor and Assistant to the President for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism, in conversation with Mike Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. Their conversation was recorded live at the Aspen Security Forum on July 25, 2015. The Aspen Security Forum is presented by the Aspen Institute Homeland Security Program. It's an annual convening that brings together the top incumbent and former security officials and all of the agencies relevant to Homeland Security. Learn more about the forum on the website, aspensecurityforum.org. Follow the conversation on Twitter at Aspen Security. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas to Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.